Thank you, Lorenzo. And hello to YouTube friends and uh, members of Collective. Uh, wherever you are today, we're here. I'm looking to the Gospel of Mark as we're studying the life, the teachings of Jesus. And uh, we're going to continue to do that today as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. And so we'll begin today with a brief question at the opening. Because there are some questions that exist for no other reason than what we could call hole digging. Last week, after our outdoor gathering, uh, obviously masked and socially distanced, a couple of us couples uh, were, were, were talking and uh, just catching up, seeing how one another were doing, how we're making our way through this year. And one of the couples had talked about that, that on Friday night, they'd opened up this big you know, can of worms in this one conversation that was all revolved around this one question. Which spouse would do the other person's job worse? Which spouse would do the other person's job worse? This is a question that is laden with landmines that exist in many ways for no other reason than for you to dig your own hole. Because at the end of the day, I mean, all of us kind of think that at some level we could do everyone else's job maybe a little bit better. I mean, we take up the case with, you know, referees in, in the Super Bowl in the game later today. When you watch referees with calls, you're, everybody thinks they could have made the call right or better. Even with, with the government and politicians, oh, if, if I was in that role, I could have made the better call. We do it with every role. And in particular, when you're considering that alongside your spouse, that is dangerous territory to be in. And so after hearing the question, I kind of, you know, really quickly just, you know, threw off to like, oh, I would totally do Erin's job worse because her job revolves around bookkeeping and numbers and HR and legal stuff. Like that is not my wheelhouse. So I just punted immediately to Aaron. I would do Aaron's job worse. One of my other friends who uh, will remain anonymous in, in this <laughs> moment for the sake of their own uh, identity uh, was not... Uh, how do we put this smart enough to acknowledge and see the landmines that were set before him in the conversation? And so he just stepped right onto it by, by saying, oh, I'd totally do my wife's job better than her. And it was just this moment where I could just see in my head him laying out the blanket and the pillow on the couch that night as he was getting ready for bed. Oh, I'd totally do it. Not even answering the question. The question was, which spouse would do the other person's job worse, their career, their vocation? And, and he not only swung past that, he went straight to, oh, I would do it better than her. And it was, um, it was a sight to behold as, as, as he stepped right on this landmine. I open up with this because today we're going to be looking at Jesus' response to two of these sort of landmine kind of questions. These two we could call shovel questions that really are nothing more than you being handed a shovel so that you can, you know, dig a hole for yourself. As we continue in Mark chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus engaging with a couple of these landmine shovel questions. Because here in chapter 12, after what we saw in chapter 11, in the beginning of chapter 12, we've seen Jesus coming into the temple in Jerusalem, him clearing it, even cursing it, bringing a message of condemnation on the temple. And in doing so, the temple leadership, the authority, this kind of, this little, you know, elite, rich, influential group called the Sanhedrin have been sending various uh, representatives to question Jesus. We saw it last week with Pastor Lucas. And this is going to continue today. All of this in chapter 12, these questions that keep coming to Jesus are part of this larger plan A strategy of the temple leadership to get rid of Jesus. After the claims he's made about the temple, 
about the priesthood, about the Sanhedrin, about their, their religious leanings and how they have led to not justice and fair worship with God's people, but injustice and, and partiality for the rich. Jesus has come with a strong word and they're saying, we got to do something with Jesus. And so their plan A has been to get Jesus to, well, to instigate him, to say something disqualifying or discrediting in the eyes of the people, to get Jesus to say something that then will lead to people either leaving him altogether or for him to even say something that they could arrest him for, something potentially illegal. And in keeping with today being, you know, Super Bowl Sunday with my sports analogy for the year, is what you find is Jesus uh, backed up in the corner with the religious leaders. And if you've ever seen Muhammad Ali against Michael Dokes, I mean, there's this moment during that fight where, uh, where Jesus, Muhammad Ali, <laughs> dodges 21 punches in 10 seconds. It's a, it's a sight to behold, regardless of, you know, what you think about boxing, or if you're into sports at all, just the level of instinct and body all into one where you just watch him moving as these punches come to the left and the right and above and the middle. And he continues to dodge while he's up against in the corner. And, and Jesus in some sense here is today you're going to find as we get into what these questions that are being asked, Jesus just dodging hundreds of these little, you know, punches as they come to him. But what's profound is to watch is Jesus in, in each moment, not only dodges the, you know, attack from these questions, the trap, the shovel, the landmine, but he also turns them over again, sports reference number two, in this kind of like jujitsu using the attack back against the attacker sort of way. He uses these questions that are meant to discredit Jesus and he turns them around. You're going to find and actually sets him up as being even wiser than he was before in the eyes of the people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two examples, these two sets of questions that get brought to Jesus and, and watch how Jesus dodges the trap and he turns that on in wisdom. We're going to go through each of those, but then we're going to return as we close today, just to kind of set up where we're going, is uh, then coming back to seeing what Jesus' subversion of these, uh, what would these reveal about him? Not just what he's saying, but about who he is. And before closing, then we're going to consider what it means for us. Those of us who are seeking to know Jesus more truly and to follow him more faithfully. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We'll be beginning in verse 13. Uh, notes as usual are there in the chat. You can follow along, but let's pray. And then let's get right into Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And so Father, we thank you for the opportunity, like Lorenzo said at the beginning, uh, for us to gather uh, here, utilizing the thing like technology and streaming and YouTube, to continue to study your scripture together in the midst of the year, that, that over a year now that we're continuing to make our way through. And so my prayer is that you might uh, unite us even at a distance across the West Side as we study Mark chapter 12, that we might see Jesus for the wisdom that he is. And God, in doing so, that we might consider how to follow him to know him more. So God, would you speak through your word and through these stories as you've done through generations, would you continue to do today? In your name we pray, amen. Well, here we go. Let's get into the first one. Let's see Jesus up against the corner. Let's see the questions that come his way. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, tells us, and they being the Sanhedrin, the temple leadership, sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, specifically why? To trap him in his talk. 
And so they came and they said to Jesus, uh, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. So then is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They say the question again. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, Mark writes, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they bring one and Jesus holds the denarius in his hand. And he says to them, who then, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so here we find the first shovel, the first landmine question, whatever we want to call this, in the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming and asking Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They say it twice. And so the question is, what does it mean for these taxes to be lawful? I mean, obviously the taxes are lawful to Rome, to Caesar. It's part of the law. You'd be disobeying the law for you not to pay your taxes. So why are they asking about lawfulness of paying the taxes? Well, they're asking this question as, as Jews, as the representatives of the temple priesthood of Israel. Their question is not in light of what is the civic law, but for them, both kind of the civic and the religious law, the, the given to them by God through Moses, the 10 commandments and the 613 others or the 603 others that go with it. Is it lawful according to what God has given us as the people of Israel to pay these sorts of taxes to Caesar? Now, why the taxes? What makes this so problematic for the people of Israel? Well, you notice there when Jesus asked them for the denarius, a pointer of why and what's at the base root of the problem. You see, the denarius was this little piece of uh, silver, a coin that was imprinted with the image of Caesar and had an inscription over the top that you know, said uh, that Caesar was the son of divine Augustus. And this was the coin that the tax that they're asking about had to be paid with. It had to be Rome's currency and specifically this coin that not only was an image of Caesar, but identified him as being son of the divine, as being a sort of divine figure, a God figure. For the Israelites, for the Jewish people, this coin broke the first two commandments, not to have any other gods and don't make any graven images. Even more than that, on a political level, to pay the tax was more than just an idolatry issue. It was an injustice issue. It was uh, in, in, in paying the tax, acknowledging Caesar's kingship, that he was Lord over Israel. And in more than that, that his practices of heavy taxation of military dominance and enforcements, that all of this was approved. To pay the tax was to acknowledge that he was king. This was problematic for the Israelites, as I said, who for them, they acknowledged that their one true king was God himself. And so once again, you get into the issue of idolatry wrapped up in this. This question was so crucial to the people of Israel in Jesus's time and in the years later that this was the key issue that led to the fall of Israel under Rome in 70 AD. When this group of the Jewish people called the Zealots finally had enough of Caesar and enough of Rome and led a tax revolt that started in not paying taxes, but led to the sharpening of swords and ultimately to violence underneath the banner of them, them proclaiming only God is king. 
And so the question beneath the question is not simply about the legality of taxes, but rather the question, who is Lord? This is what the Pharisees and the Herodians are coming with. Is Caesar God or is God God? Who is King? The question brought up here with the Pharisees and the Herodians is meant to either smoke out the revolutionary in Jesus who's finally come to get him to finally say what he thinks about Caesar or for Jesus to see and be seen as someone who is just like the rest of the political and religious elite here to uphold the status quo. Someone who's okay with the idolatry, okay with the injustice as long as it profits me on the side. So the trap, the landmine beneath the question is if Jesus says, pay the tax, the Pharisees are right there with the accusation of idolatry punishable by death. Or if he says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians, this group that was allegiant to Herod as the um, put in place leader for Caesar of the, the region that they were in, the Herodians are there. Because if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, then they're right there. Sweep him up, sedition, insurrection. Either way, Jesus is discredited, disqualified himself. They can get rid of him. And so Jesus sees it. He calls their bluff, Mark says. He sees their hypocrisies. Why are you putting me to the test? He's in on it. And so what does he, what does he do? What is the Muhammad Ali moment where he dodges all of the punches? What does he do? He says this one line after holding the coin in his hand, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. It is, I mean, you could, I, we could go on for minutes and minutes to, to unpack what Jesus is doing here. He is giving this incredible portrait of what it means to be part of his kingdom in the midst of a world with political leaders in this one little sentence. In doing this, saying, give to Caesar what Caesar, he in one hand says, by giving to God what's God, he denies Caesar of his claim of divinity, but he doesn't call for revolt. Saying give to Caesar to Caesar, he almost one acknowledges giving to him the tax, but also limits that he does not have the exclusive and, 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 and you know, large claims that Caesar wants to make, that that actually belongs to God himself. It's Jesus in this minute, in this little moment, in this conversation is dodging the claims of insurrection and sedition, but also idolatry and not dodging simply for the sake of dodging, but because this is what he understands his kingdom movement to be within. As uh, N.T. Wright puts in uh, Jesus and the Victory of God, his section on this text, he kind of summarizes this really well of, of what Jesus is doing here. He says, had Jesus told them to revolt, had Jesus told them to pay the tax, he had done neither and he had done both. You see, in reading over these lines, nobody could deny that the saying Jesus was making was revolutionary, but nor could anyone say that Jesus had forbidden payment of the taxes. Jesus is envisioning and setting before them a different sort of revolution he's bringing about. He was not advocating compromise with Rome, the idolatry of taking Caesar for who he is, but nor was he advocating a straightforward resistance of the sort that refuses to pay the tax today and sharpens its sword tomorrow. Jesus is envisioning a different sort of reign and kingdom that he's bringing. And so Jesus's wisdom in his subversion, the way that he works it around, and again, the jujitsu, he, he uses it back against them, is he uses this question that they've brought to actually assert the way that his kingdom is that actually looks entirely different than what they were anticipating or thinking. 
Like I said a minute ago, Jesus is dodging the trap, not simply for the sake of dodging it, but because his kingdom doesn't work the way they, or in many ways, are, we think it does. We and they tend to place Jesus's kingdom and what he's bringing about in some other pre-existing category that we have. And in doing so, both they and we often miss Jesus. Maybe not with a desire to trap him, but with our desire to follow him. We need to understand Jesus so that we can follow him. To see what he's at work in doing here is that, that he is not here to simply uphold the status quo, but the way that he's bringing about his revolution comes not through overturning Caesar necessarily, but actually through overturning humans to give their whole selves to God. It's profound that Jesus in holding up the coin, this little piece of silver imprinted with the name and image of Caesar, that in doing so goes, this has its image. So therefore, yeah, it belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar. And then by saying give to God what's God's, he almost, uh, Jesus is making this comparison and assertion that the Pharisees definitely would have picked up on because it's on page one of the Bible. That if this silver is inscribed with the image of Caesar, well, what's inscribed with the image of God? And it is you and me in all of our entirety of what it means to be human. And so, yeah, give Caesar your taxes, but give to God all that you are, our entire selves. And so, yes, Jesus' statement here is talking about politics and our engagement with the government. Yes, it's talking about our finances and giving it you know, to our taxes or giving it to the church or giving it to to whatever cause are necessary out of ourselves and out of our allegiance to him. And yes, it's also deeply political and that, that Jesus's mode of how he thinks we will engage best against or underneath or within whatever system of Caesar is actually not through just developing some other political means, but human beings giving themselves over entirely to the rule and reign of God, what we could call the kingdom of God. And so we've talked about this over the past year at, at length. We did a 12-week series on the story of justice, in particular, looking at Romans 13 and the function of justice teaching that's linked here in the notes, but also on our podcast page, or my interview with Dr. Douglas Herring, that we have, uh, we've looked at this, that there is an entirely different way of politics that we've been in, invited to, that Jesus is bringing about. And we find that again here as we found it throughout this year. So that's the first one. Yeah, I hope you see what Jesus has done here, that they've come asking a question that's loaded with a this or that. And depending on what he says, they're going to be able to grab him. And Jesus operating in an entirely different way of being is able to thread the needle where they can't pin on him, either of them. And he sets before us a different way entirely. We're going to watch the same thing happen again in verse 18. Read with me where now the Pharisees and the Herodians are replaced with this group called the Sadducees. They came to Jesus and Mark gives us a little hint that the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees asked Jesus a question saying, uh, teacher, Moses wrote for us a law that if a man's brother dies and he leaves a wife, but they didn't have any children, the man must take that widow and then raise up offspring for his brother. Well, think about this, Jesus. There were seven brothers and the oldest brother, he took a wife, but then he died and didn't leave any offspring. Then the second, he married her as Moses commanded us. And he died though, leaving no offspring. And the third, the same thing happened. And, and all the way through to the seventh. And none of them at any point left any offspring. Last of all, the woman then, she finally died. 
So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus says to them, is this not the reason that you're wrong? You don't know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Don't you see that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living? Yes, you are quite wrong. So here we find another set of questions brought to Jesus. This time specifically by this group called the Sadducees and this very strange question. So what in the world is going on here? Let's zoom out a little bit and then we'll come back into this. The Sadducees to start with, who are these people that don't believe in the resurrection? We're a part of the Sanhedrin. We're a part of the temple leadership, right? Those trying to discredit Jesus. But the Sadducees represented this small, very inclusive, uh, very exclusive, excuse me, group that... um, Many would connect to actually being a family line within the the priesthood, but they were a small group. It was a wealthy group. It was a very, very influential group. And so they were small, wealthy, and influential. And yet um, all of that was kind of, you know, know, not marred with, but kind of partnered with actually having some very strange kind of minority of religious beliefs within the larger scope of what most people believed in their day. And so the, the best kind of analogy that I could come up with is, is something akin to like Scientology. Very small, very exclusive, very influential, lots of money. You know, we can just go over to Hollywood and see the building. Uh, but, but, but also at the same time, very strange kind of religious beliefs for most people as they begin to look into them. And so some of these religious beliefs that they had were the Sadducees believed that God was largely distant from creation. Whereas most Jews believe that God was present within all of creation and specifically present in a really profound way in his temple, the Sadducees believed that God was largely distant, uninvolved in the instances of humanity and what we're going through, with the exception of maybe a couple of things here and there, like, you know, delivery from Exodus, uh, from their slavery in Egypt. Even more than that, they believed that uh, the, the, the scriptures for Israel were, were located not to the Old Testament, but, but just the full uh, first five books of the Bible. It's called the Torah, the law. And they saw that, you know, God basically saved us out of Egypt, uh, saved us from slavery, and then gave us these laws, the first five books, so that we could live the way that we're supposed to. And, um, And then that's basically all that it is. There's no final judgment, no kind of resurrection, nothing after you die. You live, you die. And the law is largely, you know, how to live your best life now, because this is the one, this is all you've got. So they, they, they ran counter because of this, cutting off most of the scriptures and, and their way of reading the first five books of the Bible, that the resurrection or this belief that at the end of history, the righteous, those who belong to God would rise again is what the word literally means. They, they believe that this was not a part of, of the story at all. God created the world, that he was really committed to kind of generations, you know, have babies and, and move down the line. Um, but this kind of, you know, new, new, new kingdom and the resurrection, all of this kind of prophetic hope was kind of, let's just, let's just do the law well. And and that's how we can live our best lives now. So that's, that's, that's the scope of who's coming to ask the questions. And then beneath that is, okay, what in the world is the question about all the marriage to marriage to marriage to marriage thing? 
this practice that they're talking about was common within Israel. It was uh, normally referred to as a Leverite marriage vow. It was represented within those first five books of the Torah. It's kind of a, 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 a them pulling from their own book. And uh, the whole point of this was actually to protect women who normally, let's say you got married and then the husband passed away before having any kids that would have been the, um, the through line for inheritance and for money and protection and belonging to the household. That regularly women where their husband would die, they would just kind of, they would be, you know, kicked kick to the street uncared for. This was common within the ancient Near East. And part of the law was that if that, if that a husband died before they were able to have kids, that that wife would not be kicked to the street or just left to go home, but that she would be acknowledged as part of that family still. And then part of the brother marrying her was uh, to provide um, a family line for her that the inheritance can continue through, but that even those children would still be acknowledged in some sense as that original husband, the brother's children. So the whole point is it's different. It is not our day and age. It is not how we work at all, but it's a, it's an element of, of hoping to prepare for justice uh, for those that normally would be, would be kicked to the street. But the question of what they're doing here is they are now taking the, that, that law that was given and they're placing it against the common belief of the resurrection and they're showing how they don't work together. If she is married to whoever she's married to and the one that she has you know, children with is then kind of her, now her husband, who is she original, who is she married to in the resurrection? If all seven are there, is that just like a really awkward you know, hi, how are you? Oh yeah, we're all, who's she married to is the question. What they're trying to do is to pit their understanding of the resurrection as this absurdity against what makes sense as a, as a good law. That these two things can't go together. They, they, they cancel one another out. And so the question beneath the question about the seven brothers and the marriage and the resurrection is, it's a question, who is the Lord? Who is the God of Israel? Jesus, when you perceive of God, is he the God of the Torah, the God of Leverite marriage, the God of the first five books of the Bible, the God of Moses, or is he the God of the prophets and the resurrection and all that kind of crazy talk? For them, they are seeing the scriptures as being split or, or not uh, cohesive. And Jesus needs to come in and, and clarify the hierarchy, either to side with the Pharisees who would go with the resurrection they would actually say that the first, it was actually the first husband. For those of you that are interested, the Pharisees believed that it was the first husband that would be the one that she would be married to in the resurrection. Or the Sadducees who say, yeah, we're going, we're going to side with the law and it's the resurrection is neither here nor there. But the question is, who is the Lord? Is he the God of the law or the God of the resurrection? Because they see these two as not being cohesive. And the trap beneath the question is that they can get Jesus either to say something that would, call him out as being someone who didn't believe in the law because he would undercut the Leverite marriage thing or that he would get the Pharisees mad because he wouldn't uphold the resurrection view. It's, it's, I get, this is like, oh, what in the world are we talking about? Especially some of you, maybe you're eating lunch or like getting ready for chicken wings. But this is, this is, this is the context of what's going on. And the big idea being that they're asking questions about the law, about the resurrection, and they're trying to discredit Jesus around that conversation. One that was common in Jesus's day. This is a reminder that this didn't fall out of heaven for you and me, but is a collection of eyewitness conversations that legitimately happened within things that we don't normally think about. But what does Jesus do here? Let's move into how he subverts their questions. Realizing that he says both in verse 14 and 27, you are quite wrong. If Jesus calls you wrong twice, you're not having a good day. He says, you are wrong twice. 
why are the Sadducees so wrong? He gives two reasons and then two explanations for why they're wrong. The two reasons are this, what? One, he says, you don't know the scriptures. And then right after, you don't know the power of God. He says, you guys don't know the word of God and you don't know the, the power of God. And then he goes on to explain why if they really understood the word of God and the power of God, that they wouldn't even be asking this question. So let's look at these first. So he first says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the word of God. And then he goes to show the resurrection is not some crazy thing from later books. It's a, it's a consistent theme all the way to the moment the story really began for Israel. When Moses was called, the, the, he talks about the bush. This is before chapters and verses in the Bible. You just talk about moments around what was happening. So instead of saying Exodus 3, he says, Moses at the burning bush to kind of bring everybody up to speed of like, oh yeah, that's right. Okay, we're, 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 we're remembering that story. And Jesus points out the resurrection in this really interesting way by pulling from this quote where God speaks from the burning bush to Moses and identifies himself as I am the God of Abraham and of God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Moses hears at the bush, Jesus uploads this story where God says to Moses, 200, 250 years Plus, after Abraham, after Isaac, after Jacob had all died, he says, I am present tense, their God. And so Jesus simply says, if, if he is the living God of the patriarchs, why would he identify himself with three corpses, with three dead bodies in that moment? No, Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living and if human existence is meant to be embodied, then, then for him to present tense identify with Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac means that they in some way are alive with God and, and recipients of this oncoming resurrection that is to be. This is how Jesus is reading that story. And he invites them to see that within the text for themselves. And so when God introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush, he's not reminiscing over, man, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, those guys were great. And now I'm here for you you know, for as long as, you know, you guys are around. He's making a present tense statement about who God is and the power of who he is, that those who unite to him in a covenant, a promised relationship with one another, that not even death is able to separate them from his promises. Jesus says, you guys haven't read your Bible. And he follows this up with even more, you haven't read your Bible and you don't know the power of God specifically as it pertains to the resurrection. You don't know the power of God and how this is actually gonna work within the resurrection. Because what the Sadducees were rejecting was the popular view that the resurrection was basically just that, you know, at the end of time, everybody's gonna get up again. You're not gonna crawl out of the dirt and it's gonna be more or less kind of the same as it is right now. Same basic relationships, you're still married, you still, you know, it's basically we're just starting over again. We, get, we don't have to, you know, die. But it's more or less the same down here. Jesus says, no, the resurrection is not just like a do-over. It's not just us getting up again. He says, it's the very power of God recreating the natural order and us with it. He compares re the resurrected bodies of those who now live in the resurrection, this awaited day when, when all the covenant people, all those promised and belonging to God would, would get up from the grave, never to enter the grave again. Jesus says that those body, that, that existence is like the angels in heaven. This again is him poking at the, the Sadducees who don't even believe in angels as well. But notice here that Jesus says they will be like the angels in heaven. He does not say they will be angels in heaven. 
this is one of those places where people not reading this closely enough and we get all kinds of really bad Christian theology where everybody thinks when you go to heaven, you know, St. Peter's going to be there handing you your wings and your harp, which is even already a bad view of angels to begin with. But Jesus specifically doesn't even say that you're going to be in heaven when you die. And that's where you're going to be for all time. He simply is just saying, you know, like the angels in heaven. And he draws what he means by that. No longer married or giving in marriage. Jesus sees the resurrection as being a new existence here on a transformed earth. And yet it's so transformed that there are certain components of what is so normal to us right now that will not be a part of the age to come. For him in particular, as the conversation brings about, that we will no longer marry, will no longer have sex, no longer reproduce. This is part of why the apostle Paul, as we dealt with marriage and singleness a couple of weeks ago, Paul almost sees singleness as, as the, the preferred mode from his perspective uh, for most people, because he sees that as part of entering into and living within the kingdom to come now. But regardless, as we come back to marriage still being something of this age, it's just, it's, it's vital to see. It's something of this age. It's important. It's vital. Uh, Tim Mackey, the Bible teacher who he, he equates it to kind of something like an umbilical cord of like a, a baby in utero. Like that little, that little cord is vital and necessary and good. It's not like a side thing that isn't necessary or needed. And yet within moments, it goes from necessary and vital to completely unnecessary. Jesus seems to think that, there, that marriage is one of those things that in the new heavens and new earth, the thing that's vital and good and necessary now will no longer be necessary and will simply pass away. And so Jesus sees our resurrected state as though still being embodied, as still being engendered, as still carrying our memories and our experiences and even our relationships to one another, that marriage, that sex and reproduction, that these things will pass away. Not because they were bad, but because they're no longer needed. And so the, the whole thing underneath this and Jesus' subversion and setting this forward is uh, first and foremost, that the scriptures don't work like the Sadducees think. The Sadducees see the, the Bible of Israel as kind of being this amalgamation of really helpful laws and kind of some weird prophetic stuff and maybe the song. And, and it doesn't all fit together. And so you've got to kind of cut some things out and assign some hierarchy here. And what they're saying is the resurrection and the law, those two, you've got to give a hierarchy to one or the other to be consistent, Jesus, because they just don't fit. Jesus sees the Bible, sees the scriptures working entirely different. He sees them as a unified whole and any sense of tension or not fitting togetherness that the Sadducees may see is not a fault on the scriptures part, but on their inability to read it rightly for them being the law and the resurrection. But for us, it may be the, the love or the justice of God. It could be the grace or the truth, whatever it may be the community of love that is the church that at the same time is that we hold one another to a high high regard of what we're meant to do as the people of Jesus. These things that we feel like are at tension, Jesus seems to go, it's a unified whole. And if you have a hard time seeing how they're unified, just spend a little bit more time with me and I'll show you how. Not me, with Jesus. And so the question underneath this, again, it's almost, it's similar to the question before. The Pharisees with the question around taxes, it was a question of who is Lord? Who is King, God or Caesar? And here we're dealing with the question of who is the Lord? Who is the God of Israel? 
Is it the God of the resurrection or the God of the law? And Jesus said, it's the God of the living, the one who unites all of the promises of scripture in his faithfulness, which transcends even death. For those of us that get married as a part of our vows, we regularly say till death do us part. That even marriage can be annulled by death and by Jesus's perspective, by the resurrection. But Jesus sees the covenant promises of God as being deeper than death itself and even through the resurrection. And so what we've just seen here is Jesus dodge and subvert in these two stories, these traps. This is all going to beat up to next week when we're with Pastor Isaac in the next section of chapter 12 in verse 34, where after all of this, it says no one dared to ask him any more questions. And in all of this incredible like wisdom stuff that we've seen Jesus doing, like kind of a master um, worker and how he's going through the conversation through these debates, Jesus is dodging and subverting, but more than just dodging and subverting or just describing who the Lord is, he's actually showing himself as the Lord. Isaiah 29 verse 14, God himself speaks of how he's going to engage with the unjust and idolatrous Israel. Once he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. The apostle Paul writing a few years after Jesus's resurrection, reflecting on the ministry and the work of Jesus quotes from what we just read in Isaiah 29 before then saying, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Isaiah 29 and 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul in the early church saw his coming together in the person of Jesus. And in this text today, we're just watching him debate with the temple leadership. We find him doing this. Where is the debater of this age? Jesus has silenced them all. Where is the scribe? Where is the Pharisee, the Sadducee? Where is the Herodian? Where is the, the big thought leader, the influential religious folks? God in Jesus has silenced them all. This building up to, again, that letter that Paul wrote, him identifying Jesus as the very wisdom and power of God become human. Here we find Jesus Christ as the wisdom of God thwarting, turning over the wisdom of this world, the debates of this moment that are trying to trap him up, what they meant for evil, God in Jesus turns and uses for good. And so the plan A of the temple leaders here to discredit Jesus becomes not just a failure, I guess we'll come back and try tomorrow, but an epic failure in which Jesus not only dodges and subverts, but he turns it around and makes himself to be for who he really is, even greater than how he appeared before they asked the question. It backfires. And this plan A of the temple leaders trying to discredit him is going to escalate now no longer able to ask any questions because they're going to keep backfiring for the, in, into next week. They're going to elevate and escalate to plan B. No longer content to have debates in the temple. They're going to move to betrayal. They're going to move to his arrest. They're going to move to his trials, his crucifixion and his death. And the good news is just like Christ, the wisdom of God turned over the conversations in the temple. He too will turn over, will turn over the cross and the grave itself revealing him not just as the wisdom of God, but the power of God become human in his resurrection, where he rose up again and was transformed. And so as Jesus does here in the temple with his words, he's gonna do as we'll see as we continue through Mark's gospel, he will do through his life on the cross and through his tomb. 
And he did not do this for his own sake. But again, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he did this for ours. That through his death, through his resurrection, he might take the attempts of uh, the world and and the devil and and the religious leaders and Rome and turn them over through his state-sanctioned death, bearing all of the judgment and brokenness and wickedness of this world so that he might turn it over so that we might be made right, so that we may be set apart as his people, so that we may be redeemed from darkness to light, from death to life. This is what he's come to do. And so where do we go from here? As I was going over through this text with uh, my wife, Erin, earlier this week, you know, we got to kind of this point and she's kind of like, so is that, is that it? <laughs> like this week is kind of just like a, isn't Jesus awesome? He's really good at debating and he can move things over and he's just really smart. Where do we go from here within these sorts of texts? What is this calling out of us? Now, likely, I mean, there could have been two separate sermons. I originally had planned for that, but ended up merging them together intentionally because we could have spent a whole bunch of application dealing more with politics and, our, and the church's relationship to the government, to Caesar, like we've done in the past. We could have done a whole talk about the resurrection and the, the awaiting and, 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 and engaging within that new sort of transformation that the future is coming. And yet we, we've put these together intentionally because I believe in having these alongside each other, we get the scope of Jesus's lordship of what it means for him to be king. Because what we find with the Sadducees and the conversation of the resurrection is that Jesus is the Lord of the living. He is the Lord of the resurrection. He is the Lord of that future hope when all things will be made right, transformed into a greater goodness and and togetherness than we can imagine right now. Further beyond our imagination than Chuck E. Cheese is to a child in utero. That Jesus is the Lord of the living, the Lord of the resurrection, the future, the already, the not yet components of his Lordship. And yet he is not simply a pie in the sky by and by. There's our hope out there one day when we die waiting for that sort of Lord. He is not content to give us simply hope for the future, but his Lordship has implications for right now and right here. That's what we saw with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Jesus's lordship has just as much implications about the, the, the terror of death and the monotony of paying for your taxes and how you relate to the state. And so we need a discipleship, a way of following Jesus that we carry the full scope of Jesus's lordship. Learning to set our anticipation and our eyes forward to the resurrection, but not do that without keeping our eyes focused on what's right in front of us. And this can be as simple as paying our taxes in our relationship to the government, but what what Jesus calls us for is to give all of ourselves to God. And so this shows ourselves, not just in taxes or politics, but in, in going to work, or for many of us in looking for work, as we're raising kids, as we're uh, dedicating our time and our money, as we're in relationships or as we're walking through our lives within singleness or within marriage or within date or whatever sort of component we may be, that we see all of that as being something that Jesus's Lordship speaks to because he is not simply another sort of king who just wants our taxes. He is God become human. And in doing so, he is the God whose image we bear, who is owed all of us. And so I've set these two together because I believe so often you can find within most Christians and even within collective that we are prone to lean to one side or the other within our discipleship of the scope of Jesus's Lordship. We either really, really focus on what Jesus says about politics, about Caesar, about taxes, about the already our lives lived right here kind of things. 
And so we can get so focused on uh, this can be everything to our, our engagement within issues of injustice, but even just, you know, spiritual practices kind of stuff. We focus on all of that, living the life that we have right here. And we get overly focused on that. At the same component, you have others that, that we focus so heavily on the not yet, the resurrection, the transformation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, all this incredible hope and expectation that, that it really doesn't have any implications on the way that we're living right here and right now. And for Jesus, he sees for him to be the Lord of the living, the Lord who's bringing about the resurrection that has huge implications with how you live your life today, right here in the midst of paying your taxes, in the midst of watching the Super Bowl in the midst of living your life, going to work, the relationships that you have and how you enter into them. Jesus sees his lordship as being all of them. Because in some, some way, the resurrection is the statement that the God who is so committed to you that he's not willing to leave you in death, but to raise you into life. And the same God who would raise all of you into life, not just soul, but body, also, this is, this is the line of thought that Paul has uh, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. The same God who would raise you to life and raise your body to life in the resurrection has, has claims and lordship over what you do with your body, within your life, your lived experience today, right here and right now. And so what we need is more disciples, more Christians, more, more of us who are willingly entering into our lives finding ourselves within that regular rhythm of looking forward with anticipation and hope and a desire and a commitment to the new heavens and new earth and the resurrection. Though we look at all of our lives down here and in particular, something as important of, as marriage as simply being part of this, this life, that it is not exhaustive. It is not the exclusive purpose of life. It is not what we were made for. What we were made for is resurrection and transformation. And yet that doesn't mean that we look past these things or downplay. It means that we enter into them, that we give to God what is God's, which is all of us.